I don't know how much work you have done with joint compound or spackle. Um, if you've ever put up a wall in a house like we did a few years ago, we were running out of room in our house and we were having more children. They just kept coming out of everywhere. So we need to find a place to put them. And um, so in our bedroom, which is, was uh, you know, sizable for the size of our house, we had a pretty big bedroom. So, well, we had to cut that down into a piece. So we, we, we framed out a wall, my father-in-law and I, Framed out a wall, we cut our room in half, and then we had to put the, the sheetrock or the wall board up. Now, as you know, the, the wall board has the joints, and it feathers down, so you put the, the factory edges together, um, try to make as small of a gap as possible, you slap some joint compound on there, and put the tape, and then the compound again. You know the systematic process of it all, but you can't just put joint compound on once, because what happens is it starts to, to recede. It, it it uh, shrinks a little bit. So you sand it down and put another layer of joint compound on it. Well, that's pretty systematic. It's pretty uh, predictable. Then there are other problems that happen in your home, like when someone gets a little overzealous with the bathroom door and they slam it into the wall behind it and then now you have a hole in your horsehair plaster. Horsehair plaster. 18 years of dealing with horsehair plaster has me traumatized. At any rate... You try to cover that hole up and you use some spackle. Now, I'm a simpleton, so I don't just use like the normal spackle. I use the color-coded kind. It goes on pink, and when it's dry, it turns white. It's for a dummy like me. So I can put that thing on. But again, with, with a door handle impression, it's pretty deep. It's a lot to cover. You're not doing that once. You're not doing that twice. You're doing it multiple times for it to actually come out smooth. Now, can you imagine... Here you are, you have this hole in your wall or this crack and you're trying to fill it in and you, and you do everything just right. You, you, you put your spackle or your joint compound on that thing. You go away. A few hours later, you come back and it's like, man, that, it's like, like I didn't do anything. And then you, you do it again, right? You put more joint compound or spackle on it. And you walk away and you come back and it's like, what's going on? It keeps on disappearing. Can you imagine if that goes on and on like Groundhog Day? It's like, it's like I never actually did it. Um, one of the realities of our lives is the more we see and the more we try to fill portions of our lives, the more we recognize that there is something inexhaustible about the cravings and desires of our heart. Inexhaustible. Doesn't matter how many times you spackle it, try to put some putty in there, there's always going to be more need. And God has revealed to us this challenge. Sometimes life can be kind of like this, where no matter how much we try to fill in, it's, it's just not happening. Why do I have to keep addressing the same problems over and over and over again? It comes to mind it. An old song, I can't get no, because I try, and I try, but what happens? It's not there. Well, life is filled with unexpected twists and turns. Not everything goes in accordance with our precise plan. Maybe you lay your plans out nicely. It doesn't always work out that way. Um, not everything happens in our lives makes total sense. As, we, as you approach the wisdom literature, wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that, that book of writings, it's the wisdom literature. 
there are some themes that you get out of these glorious books. The, these are there's not just works of men; they're works of God that He used men to to, to pen. So you see the humanness of these letters, and you see the divine provision in these letters. If you think about the letter of Proverbs or the book of Proverbs, you notice the norms of life. If you do this, this is how things generally turn out. If you don't do this, this is how life generally turns out. Proverbs, it's proverbial wisdom. You see that in in the book of Proverbs. It's kind of like, this is how life works. Well, and then you see the book of Job. Job is really the, the suffering and difficulty and sorrow of life. These are the things that we'd rather avoid. Like nobody wants their child to die out in the field. No one wants all their children having a party in a house and and a storm comes along and they're all dead. Uh, No one wants to have boils all over their bodies and have to, you know, sit on an ash heap and try to scrape the boils. No one wants that, right? These are the sorrows and difficulties that our, our lives encounter from time to time. The book of Ecclesiastes, when, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that God, through Solomon, teases out is the inconsistencies of life, where our expectations are dashed. I just thought it was going to go like this. I thought if I would do all the right things, that all the right blessings would be attendant to it. Or I thought if I did the wrong things, no blessing would be there. And Solomon says that that's not really how things always turn out. Sometimes the righteous are experiencing suffering, and sometimes the unrighteous experience prosperity. It doesn't always work that way. It's, there are, there are, there's a lot more to life than the way you might expect. At first glance, as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you might think that the preacher or Solomon is a pessimist. It can feel that way, Right? See, as he unfolds the, the glories of chapter 1, he's talking about how rivers are flowing. Now, I was just in New Hampshire uh, a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, and going along the, the we call it the Kangamangus. I don't know how you get Kangamangus out of Kankamaga. Uh, Kankamaga? I don't know how to say it. How do you spell it? It's different than how you say it. At any rate, we're along the Kangamangus Highway, and this beautiful swift river, it's gorgeous. You see the little... Uh, waterfalls here and there, and and the and the stones, and just how the water works. When you look at that, like for me, I look at that, and I'm thinking, boy, that's that's really beautiful. I enjoy it. And Solomon looks at that and says, I've been examining this for a while, and what I've noticed is that that stream just keeps on flowing down, and and it's going there, and 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 and, and it keeps coming, and it's going there, and it's like to what end? This is ridiculous. It's like a waste of time. So if, I, if, a, if a river's going to flow, it should at least fill something up, and then, then it can be comp- job done. That's kind of how Solomon, in this um, wisdom literature, in this pensive state, is, is looking at it. Or, like, I look at the sunrise, and I'm thinking, wow, that's gorgeous. Or the sun sets. I'm just like a super simple person. It's like, man, that's pretty. Solomon thinks, that thing goes around and around and around. It's like, it's, it, it's, man, that thing's got to be tired by now. What in the world? That's not how I look at it. But that's how Solomon's looking. He's teasing out some of the realities of life and some of the, the intricacies of life. And, and you might say he's pessimistic, but I, I think more that Solomon is leaning into and willing to chew on some of the hard parts of life that we would just rather dismiss or overlook. He's willing to look at the brokenness of our lives 
in our own lives and in the life around us. And instead of saying, well, I don't want to think about that. That's just too much for my little pea brain. He actually chews on it and says, why is this? Why is it that something is crooked when it really should be straight? And why is something over here straight when it really ought to be crooked? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, But as he teases it out and as he thinks it through, what he's going to do is he's going to test out some different theories of what will make sense to the difficulties of life that he is experiencing. He's going to test that out in the course of this. But as we look through the book, one of the things that I think that we have to understand, and I th- it's, it's implicit throughout the book and very explicitly stated in one spot, the reason that we look at life the way that we do and the reason why you can um, experience all the glory of, of nature and not be fully satisfied and, and take in as much wisdom as you can and never be fully satisfied, and enjoy the hard work of your hands, but really have another project left, or um, have this wonderful relationship, but they can't fill every single need. There's a reason behind all of that, and that's because God has done something mysterious to us and necessary for us. God has placed eternity in our hearts. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Take a look, please, at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and look down at verses 9 through 11 with me. He says in verse 9, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's a a few contrasts here. He says, what gain is there from all the work? Now, in other places, he's going to say that when, when I see the work of my hand and I see it as good, I can enjoy some things. But if I see the work of my hands as gain, as something that will really satisfy me, I'm going to find it to come up short. But on the other hand, while my work of my hands comes up short and doesn't give me eternal gain, the things that God has done are different than that. They're they're altogether different. But one of the things that God has done that I think will, will really undergird our thinking through our study is that God has placed eternity in our heart. The, the word there in the Hebrew for eternity is the word olam. And it means forever. God has placed forever in our heart. You could say it that God has placed a black hole in our heart. You could say that God has placed the Bermuda Triangle in our heart. God has made a place for the eternal in our heart. That, that vacuum is longing to be filled. It's the endless search for meaning, the endless search for satisfaction, the endless search for joy. 
everyone in one way or another has that same void that must be filled. Many have tried to capture this sense of eternity in their hearts. It's, it's a, a regular occurrence. But I want to just share a few thoughts from a few different authors. Listen to the words of this author. He says, throughout history, philosophers and sages couldn't help notice the hole that's in our hearts. The universal and insatiable yearning to experience more. To attain something higher, deeper, Fuller, richer, stronger, wiser, safer, happier. Just pause there for a second. Yearning to experience more. Now, you've seen some incredible scenes in your life, right? Maybe you've, I, I'll never forget being on Big Sur over on the West Coast, riding along the edge of the Pacific Ocean, and the, in another place, the rolling hills of the California wine country. Some incredible spots, right? Or um, my wife and I, a few years ago, were driving through uh, Vermont on Route 100 in a convertible. Oh my word. Just It was September. The leaves were starting to turn. You're just riding through these roads of God's creation. You just think, this is just Beautiful. But the eye is not satisfied with seeing. And the ear is not satisfied with hearing. We always want to see that one again or something better. Isn't that, isn't that normal? Maybe you've been in Bermuda. Or maybe you've been in Hawaii. Maybe you've been in the, in the Pacific, um, in one of those islands out in the Pacific. You're always looking for a better scene, or a recurrence of that good experience. We're always looking for more. Blaise Pascal once wrote, All men seek happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Happiness. Just trying to, trying to get something that's missing. I, need, I can't experience this sadness, this anxiety, this depression anymore. I can't experience this nothingness anymore. I need something. Something. They're seeking happiness. People have tried to fill this eternity in our hearts with all types of pursuits. A new location. A new body shape. Better financial condition. But if you listen to the conclusion of many studies on such pursuits, you'll find that it doesn't actually work. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your body looks like. There's an endless pursuit that does not satisfy. Uh, this next quote comes from uh, a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. People who live in cold climates expect people who live in California to be happier. <laughs> Maybe not in these days, but they're wrong. People believe that attractive people are happier than unattractive people, but they too are wrong. Oh, take California out of the equation, make it Florida or like New Mexico, right? We, we expect, oh, if we, if we move, move to this, this uh, more consistent climate rather than the, the cold and, the, and it makes my bones hurt and, and, it, and, it, and it messes with my asthma, I'm going to move to this other, this new climate, it'll make me happy. And the reality is the studies show that that's not really what works. I came across this uh, tweet. You ever look at 
the tweets on Twitter. Came across this tweet from uh, Tim Keller a few days ago. He writes this, Studies find a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is, what does it say? Depression. After basic needs are met, the things that human beings think will bring fulfillment and contentment don't. Well, Solomon had discovered this long before our sociologists did. Um, and God has begun to reveal to him why he felt this way. Bracketing the book of Ecclesiastes are these statements that I think are very important for us to try to grapple with. Take a look at chapter 1 for a moment. In verse 1, he tells, you know, he kind of introduces himself. These are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now he introduces the, his musings. Will you read verse 2 with me? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, this is going to be great. <laughs> nothingness, nothingness. Transience, transience, temporalness, temporalness. I can't quite grab it. I can't quite grab it. Very happy. Well, take a look now at the end of the book, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He's mused and mused and mused some more as he goes through. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 8. Will you read verse 8 with me? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Oh, all right. Try not to depress me now. The word vanity there is the Hebrew term hevel. Hevel. It, I think as I studied this and have thought through it and read other people's studies on it, to me the best way of defining hevel or vanities is take a match, strike it. It's lit. Blow it out. And then try to grab the smoke. It, it moves through your fingers. You can't actually grab it. You can't handle it. It, it, it just moves. It's ephemeral is another word for it. It's, it's ungraspable. So he says, everything in life, I can't grab it, hold it, control it, design it, and make sure that I get the end that I'm looking for. Hevel. Life is filled with inconsistencies and it's outside of my control. I cannot control life. Well, that could be very discouraging unless we understand why our lives feel that way. I think it's important for us by God's grace, through His revelation to us, to understand that God has made it this way so that we will not depend upon ourselves to order our lives because our ordering of our lives ends up with disaster. Because the things that we crave cannot satisfy. The things that we seek will not bring about the desired end. But there is one who can give us something beyond what our minds would ever design which brings me to a C.S. Lewis quote, which we mentioned a few times in our study back a few years ago. 
C.S. Lewis is often quoted for saying this. It is, to me, one of his finest uh, statements. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never, in, uh, never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Now, let's take a step back from the book of Ecclesiastes. I want you to think about Solomon for a moment. You know that the Bible says, outside of the Lord Jesus Himself, He was the wisest man to walk in the face of the earth. Under Solomon's kingship, the prosperity of the nation of Israel was at its absolute peak. It was the golden age for Israel. So he had power, prestige, wisdom, and wealth beyond compare. He had a lot of time on his hands. There was peace all around him. He wasn't leading his troops out into battle. He was hanging out at his house with probably not a lot to do other than to think about what else he wanted. And he wanted a lot. And every single thing he wanted, he grabbed for himself. Everything he wanted to make, he made. Every plant he wanted to plant, he planted. And as much of the produce from those plants that he wanted to eat, he consumed. His parties were the best. His house was the best. His wisdom was the best. He had absolutely everything. And you know what he found out? That ain't it. That's not going to make me happy. Temporary. Little snack here. Little snack there. But it's not going to get the job done. And because he had all of this wisdom and all of this wealth, and he tapped out every single resource he had to find happiness, and he couldn't find it in those things, he realized, oh, there must be another way to experience this satisfaction. It must come from somewhere outside of here. And lest you think that this is just Solomon being a cynic, or perhaps an archaic way of looking at things, or, well, this is just the precurse, or excuse me, the pre cross way of viewing things, I want for us to look at the book of Romans for a moment. It's a nice place to be, isn't it? What do you think? Should we turn to Romans? We're not used to doing that. Romans chapter 8. This is not just a pre-cross way of viewing life. God, the Spirit, inspiring Paul the Apostle, writing to a group of Christians speaks about some of the same sense of futility or 
I can't quite get a handle on life. I can't orchestrate and run life the way that I think is best. It's outside of my control. He said, everyone experiences this. We're in Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 18 through 24 at least. Romans chapter 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Stop there for a second. Eager longing. In other words, it's not satisfied yet. Creation. Creation includes people. Creation includes animals. Creation includes the the actual terrestrial ball that we're standing or sitting upon. This whole thing, it's longing. There's more. There's more. This is not enough. What I'm experiencing right now, it's not fully, entirely satisfying. It is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to what? Futility. Not willingly. It had the, the creation, the, the ground had nothing to do with the fall. Adam and Eve sinned, and the curse came on the ground. It was this futility was brought upon the creation, but uh, it was because God subjected the creation to this. God placed eternity into our hearts. God placed a longing into everything He has made. It's all, it's all waiting. Waiting for what? Well, the trees of the fields are clapping their hands, right? The stones themselves want to cry out. Now, these are just inanimate objects. But they're inanimate objects created by God for a purpose of pointing people to who He is, how great He is, and they find their, their fullness and their fulfillment in Him. God uh, subjected it to, to futility, not willing, but because of Him who subjected it. Verse, uh, at the end of verse 20, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Stop for a second. Is Paul a pessimist? You wouldn't say that Paul's a pessimist, would you? He's talking about the realities of life. Almost exactly the way that Solomon did. Solomon uses the word hevel in the Hebrew. We've got a different word in the Greek. It's the same concept. There's this weariness, this longing that can only be fulfilled in the hope that is a person. Who is that person? Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the the one that fills all of that empty, all of that striving, all of that longing, all of that subjection, all of that bondage that we have. We're, we're in bondage. He can set us free so we can experience the hope that is to come when it is fully realized. We have the glimpses and tastes and joys of the set, being set free and the, 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 the hope that is to come. But one day we will fully realize it and experience from second to second forever Freedom from the bondage to this eternity in my heart because God is able to fill 
the eternal void He has placed within us. We'll go a little bit further. I'm just going to read the end of the passage. We'll go back to the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who are born again, we who have already experienced redemption. He says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. God has saved us in hope of an expectation when we'll be free from this endless craving to satisfy ourselves. Hmm. All right, let's head back. Head back to the book of Ecclesiastes. How do I fill eternity? How do I fill eternity? The preacher tries to fill that longing in so many different ways. He tries to fill it with wisdom in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the first half of the chapter, he tries to fill it with self-indulgence. In other words, whatever I want, I get. Whatever I think is best for me, I'm going to do. Then at the end of chapter 2, he tries to fill that longing, that craving, with wise living. And in this section, Pastor Jeff's going to talk more about this concept uh, when, when he takes his turn. He notes another theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how much you obtain for yourself, financially, wisdom, no matter how many things you accomplish, no matter how many people you accumulate around you, doesn't matter who you are, nobody escapes their own funeral. How do you fill eternity? Well, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try this. Just, just know, try it all you're still going to die. It's going to happen. The record is astoundingly, amazingly accurate. One person after the other. We all die. He tries workmanship, the things he does with his hands. That doesn't work. It's easy to get stuck um, talking about pessimistic things. But that's... While he, he tries to paint this picture of I can't get my hands on it, this doesn't satisfy. This doesn't help. This doesn't make my life complete. And everyone dies. It feels so heavy and pessimistic. But to only see it from a pessimistic standpoint is to miss the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not just how do I fill eternity. There's something that he weaves in and out of the text all throughout. And that is that God gives good gifts in this journey. God gives good gifts in this journey. I want for us to survey it just for a moment. Solomon discovered through his investigation that God was not indifferent or uninvolved. It's clear that Solomon knows that there is much more beyond the sun. He keeps talking about under the sun and under the sun and under the sun throughout the book. But he knows there's something beyond the sun. And he declares throughout the book in little, little threads that God is good 
and God is present. Take a look at these passages with me. There's a list of them. You see them on the board there. We'll just read through one after the other uh, briefly. Ecclesiastes 2. Look at verses 24 and following. Ecclesiastes 2, 24. It's like dark, 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 and dreary and miserable. And you come to verse 24 and it's like, a little light in the midst of darkness. That seemed like I was on pitch. Was I on pitch? I don't know. I have no idea. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is, will you read it with me? From the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. God gives this. God gives this. God gives the ability not only to obtain a big fat piece of ham that you put on your smoker and let it smoke all day long, and then at the end of the day, you take it off of the smoker and let it rest for a little bit, then you put it on the counter on top of one of those little chopping blocks and you kind of pull it apart and you've got pulled ham. Delicious. Not only does God give you the ability to have the piece of ham, but the ability to put it in your mouth and chew, swallow, and get all the taste. And then the, it gets down to your belly and it feels so nice to have been filled with something. God gives us the ability to enjoy the things that He gives to us. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. He said, I perceive that there is nothing better for them, that's man, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. What does it say? This is God's gift to man. Man. Mankind. That's everybody. Not only can I put a ham on my smoker, if you have a smoker, you can go put a ham on your smoker. Right? Or maybe you don't do ham. Maybe you like other things. Maybe you like to go out to the garden and take a nice red tomato off of a vine. You pull it and you slice it up. Put some salt on it. If you do those kinds of things, maybe it's delicious to you. These are part of God's good gifts to mankind. Everyone. Everyone has the ability to enjoy these kinds of things. God gives us that ability. Look a little further now at chapter 5. This is even, even more so. I, I want you to really understand, I want for us to understand what Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions, ready? Will you read the next one, two, three, four, five words with me? And power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Solomon is not a pessimist. He is not an atheist. He is not an agnostic. He says, all of these things that we do, 
all of these pursuits that we have, if, if we try to take these pursuits that, that we would think as, as worthwhile and we try to extract from them more than they are able to bear, we actually make a good thing a terrible thing. Instead, if we take these things as simple pleasures to have a piece of steak or to have a cob salad, and we say, this is, this is delicious. Or if we go out to the ocean and we just watch the waves roll in, we say, this is beautiful. Or we watch the sun rise or set, and we say, this is beautiful. If we just say that this is just a nice little gift, it's a nice little piece of joy in this moment, if we take them in, the, in these bits and pieces and say, this is just a nice thing, then they are they're little blessings along the way. It's like you have your home and you put a picture on the wall. Picture makes the, the wall nicer, doesn't it? If you don't have the picture, do you still have a wall? Are you still inside your house? Yeah. But does the picture make it nicer? Probably. You have a little plant over in the corner, does it make it nicer? Probably. You have a, a table to have chairs around, to have dinner at, that's great. Maybe you have a tablecloth, a little nicer. These little gifts of work, little gifts of the product of your work, little gift of wisdom here or wisdom there, they're helpful little blessings along life's course. But know this, those gifts, you think you're providing it with your hands. And really, without the Lord, you could be a paraplegic. You could have a stroke, be unable to work. Without the Lord, you don't have the power to get wealth, the power to obtain wisdom, the power then to enjoy the benefits of those things. All of these things, he says, are a gift from God. And it's a very helpful thing to learn that the blessings, the little things in life, the little trinkets, the garnishes on the plate, they're blessings from the hand of God. They're good things, not bad things. But as Solomon goes through, he doesn't just want us to know, okay, everything's heavy and there's this gap in my life. And he doesn't just tell me that, okay, there are little treats along the way. He says, I, what's really going to be helpful to you and me is to know God as He is. To know God as He is. And so, in the course of writing, there are numerous appeals. And I'm going to have the list again in front of you. We're not going to have time to look at all of the, the list of Scripture passages. We'll look at all of those verses, and we'll make reference to a couple of them in a moment. All of these are calling for you and I to recognize that our lives come under under the hand of a good God who orchestrates life. And he uses the phrase, fear God. Don't misunderstand what that means. It's very easy to misunderstand what it means to fear God. As if you're going through life just wondering, when is He going to crack the whip? Just when is He going to call me to account? Just when is He going to say, no, you're not good enough. No, you're not accepted. That's Religion takes the fear of the Lord and turns it into a very negative thing. 
The Bible does not paint such a picture of what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is to see God as high and lifted up. It's to see God as the author of life who speaks the world into existence, who creates and sustains and provides and offers Himself as a solution to our deepest and darkest needs. The fear of the Lord is to recognize that God is God and I is not. I'm not the God of my own destiny. But I do know the One who is. And so Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, threads through this letter, this book, this composition, this call for you and for me to see God as big, as overarching, as ruling, and that even the things that are crooked, that I wish to make straight, that remain crooked, they're in the hands of God. Take a look just at two of these. Look at chapter 3, please. Ecclesiastes 3. He concludes verse 13 by talking about the enjoying eating and drinking, taking pleasure and toil because this is God's gift to man. And then he says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people... What? Fear before Him. Again, it's not like, oh no, what am I going to do now? It's, that's not the concept. It's you try and do this and you can taste some good from it. But you can't control the end from the beginning. God can control the end from the beginning and we see what He can do. His work remains and we say, wow Lord, that's the real work. Again, I don't want to steal Pastor Jeff's thunder. This is one of, that's one of his uh, topics that he'll be talking about uh, more eloquently than I just did. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, but there is a time for every matter and for every work. Down at, uh, look at chapter 5 and verse 7. He says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. You come underneath Him. There, one writer makes this statement, Ecclesiastes is really about the meaninglessness of life without God. But because the writer never gives up his belief in God, his ultimate purpose is to show us how meaningful life can be when we see things from God's perspective. His message is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. So we're going through this. You know, what can fill eternity? Or what can you use to fill eternity? God has placed eternity in your hearts. How do you fill eternity? God is uh, no God as He is. Now we come to this last one. This brings us back to some concepts in the Gospel of John as we, as we conclude our time this morning. Eternity can only be filled with something infinite. Eternity that's been placed in our heart can only be filled with something infinite. Take a look at the Gospel of John chapter 4. You're familiar with the scene. The Lord Jesus has been walking with His disciples. They go off to get some food. He's sitting by a well. The Samaritan woman comes over to Him. He asks for a drink. She's kind of blown away by His willingness to talk to her and to ask for a drink. And then He offers to her something that she never would have expected. 
Look at John chapter 4, verses 10 and following. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. Eternal life. You can only fill the eternity that's in your heart with something eternal and that very thing Jesus offers to us. He offers Himself. Take a look at chapter 10. It was read in our Scripture reading earlier. We're not going to read the whole section. Just a couple of verses from it. John chapter 10. Jesus introduced Himself as the door. The door, the entryway into the safety of the sheepfold. Other people try to sneak into that sheepfold, but they've got to go through the door. And Jesus says, I am that door. Verse 9, I am the door. John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by Me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find what? Pasture. Something satisfying. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they or you may have what? Life and have it how? Abundantly. He's offering to you and to me a way to satisfy, to satiate this craving, this this yearning inside of us for something to fill all the needs inside. And He says, I have something for you. It's life. It's abundance. It's abundant life. And it's pasture, safety, security, and nourishment. I have everything you need. I'm the door. He goes on to talk about how the fact that he is the shepherd and he lays his life down. This is not just some like concept. Okay, Jesus will come. He'll, fe- he'll fix your problems. It's way better than that. It's way better than Jesus fixing your problems. Jesus offers to stand in your place. You have brokenness. You have lack. You have these yearnings. You have these desires. Let me give you Myself. Do you know that the Bible calls Jesus the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? When Jesus offers to give to you Himself and eternal life and abundant life, He's offering you a glimpse at the eternal, which in this life as a believer, you know, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. I've been set free from the corruption of bondage, but yet there's that still that groaning that's within me as a person. There's always some other thing that we want to do. There's always some vacation that we need or some other meal that we want to eat or some other scene we want to see. It's not just like them out there, they have all these problems, but he, we in here, we're all set. 
We have these same yearnings within us. And he's, He set me free from having to grasp at it somewhere else. He set me free because He's given me life. And here in this life, we have these little tastes. Taste of what? You know, in those moments that you realize exactly how great God is, exactly how great Jesus is and what Jesus has offered you, and you know how like there's nothing in the whole wide world other than that that's on your mind in that moment? Have you experienced a moment like that? A moment of like just thinking, wow. I, I'm in awe of how good and kind and loving God is and what He's given to me in Christ. You've experienced those? It's a glimpse of the eternal that's to come. Though there'll be no more craving no more yearning. No more dissatisfaction. He will fill us infinitely, eternally, without ceasing in that day. Here in this life, we get to experience little, little snippets of it. Little tastes of it. The Spirit fills our hearts and reveals to us there's life. There's life. It's not found in a steak It's not found at a Cobb salad. It's not found at a sporting event. It's not found at the beach. There's life in me that can never be taken from you. I want to ask you, do you feel yearnings? That makes you a human. Makes you a human. Those yearnings are there for a reason. Not to be fulfilled by whatever you're yearning for but to be filled by an eternal God who can fill you and give you exactly what you need. Life, abundant, eternal, that can never be taken from you. I I submit to you, look up. Look at what your Creator has provided. You get little tastes of it along the way. Little blessings, little joys. Happy, thank you. But they're ultimately fulfilled in Him. Look to Him and don't settle for something that's going to be taken away. Eventually there's not another stake to have because you can't open your mouth anymore. No, there's not a a scene to to view because your eyes are shut. But if you've received from God eternal life, that fullness lies in the future. And there'll be no end in what God provides for you. Let's pray together. Father, You know what each one needs. I don't. You do. I pray, Father, that You would be at work in us, helping us to see that You are all satisfying, that Your Son is very good, that You've provided for us forgiveness of sin through Your Son and eternal life through Your good raising Him from the dead. I pray, Father, for anyone in here that's never trusted Christ, that even in these moments as we come to a conclusion, we pray that they would... um, would call upon His name for life. I pray for those of us that know Christ that we would recognize that while these cravings still exist within us, they point us to the the fullness that You provide for us. I pray that You'd help us to look to You and to be satisfied in You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.